Barr has been preaching uh, for the last three weeks, and uh, it was kind of a chance for me to go uh, uh, and, and do some traveling, but also do some work and around here as well. And if I knew it, it would feel like three years off from teaching, I probably would have shortened it, but no, it was great. And so I was trying to get back into the swing of things. Uh, some of you may know that in this season of the life of our church, in the summertime, we do a lot of planning for the next ministry year. So uh, who, who is doing this? Not just Barr and I and Julie and some other people. There are a lot of people who serve in different ministry areas and capacities in our church. Many of them are amongst you. They're people with other occupations that give their time and energy to, uh, to God's church. And so this summer we ask and we kind of pull aside and we begin to process through how God has blessed us and how he might use the resources that he's given us to uh, better serve our people but also serve the community. And I think all of our ministry leaders would amen the fact when they say there are plenty of seats at the table. So as people come into the life of the church, we want to plug them into an area uh, of, of ministry where they feel like they can serve and they can give back. And that's part of being part of the body of Christ. So we look forward to that. And uh, pray that you just pray for us over the next couple of weeks. There's lots of things to think through. There are many things that we could do, uh, but we want to do the things that God has called us to do. Not just things that other churches do or things that we've read about, but things that God would call us to do specifically in this community. And so we are putting our, our, our face to the floor and praying together and planning together. Uh, and, and we ask that you pray for us in this. It's an important time in the life of our church as we seek to uh, determine how we want to spend um, our, our next year of ministry, ministering together. So please pray with us uh, that we would lay aside, as Hebrews says, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles and distracts, I would add that word, uh, so that we can run the race that God has given us with endurance. Um, as you turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke 7, we're in a series looking at the book of Luke, uh, and if you didn't know better, you might think that Jesus has camped out on this plane for like a year teaching, and it wasn't that long, but we've been in this uh, Luke 6 passage for a long time looking at Jesus' uh, sermon on the plane, which is found in chapter 6, and so we're just now coming out of that. The reason why we spent time kind of breaking it up is Jesus says a lot in this chapter, and so, uh, and, and most of it is directed at what is the kingdom of heaven like? What is the kingdom economy like? How should we live as sons and daughters of the king in light of an eternity that we may not see before us with our eyes all the time, but is a reality that Jesus is trying to build into his people? And so we have spent the time uh, looking at that over the last uh, weeks and months together, but we're moving into chapter 7. Many of you guys will know that as, as Jesus, not only in this sermon, but also just in, in, light, in all of Jesus' ministry, he is surrounded by many people. He's, he's surrounded by his disciples. He's to, uh, surrounded by doubters, those who don't believe he is who he says he is, deceivers, those who would seek out ways in which to arrest him and kill him. And then, and then you just have the down and out. Those are all Ds because my wife likes it to set up that way. So down and out, just the people who are in such great need and they hear about this guy who's doing this thing and they think, gosh, if I could just get close, maybe I could get some of that. I don't know who he is. I don't know what his message is. I don't know where he comes from or where he's going. But if I could just get this physical need or this thing met, I would be better off. And so you have those as well who come. They didn't all come from the same, uh, come to Jesus for the same reason. But if you see Jesus, he doesn't generalize his message. He doesn't just kind of 
whitewash it all. He, he goes right to the heart of his message. He speaks to his disciples. He speaks to those who are part of Christ, uh, away from Christ, knowing uh, that for some, in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul writes that for some, it is the smell of death to death, but to others, it is the aroma of life to life. And so Jesus knows full well that his message will be received by some and rejected by others. The message will not always fall on welcomed ears. In Hebrews 12, God promises that the word of God is living, that it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So if you're here this morning, this is what I have to offer you. A sharp sword. And if I have my way, I'm going to stab us all with it this morning. And trust the Lord. And if he answers my prayers and he keeps his promise that none of us will leave here the same because of the effect of this word on us this morning, it will change the way that you see yourself. It'll change the way that you love. It'll change the way that you work, the way that you live. And that's a good thing for us to accept and desire. So would you stand with me in honor of God's holy word? It's set apart, his inspired word, penned by man, but from God for us. His inerrant word, without error or mistake, as I read from Luke 7, verses 1 through 10 this morning. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do all this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have, found, have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Let me pray for us as you take your seats. Father, this morning as we read your word, we pray that it would be powerful and effective, that you would go where I cannot, where words cannot, where only your spirit can that you would show us the intentions and desires of our heart that would be wayward and not of you, and that you would convict us of those things and, and, and push us towards your truth. Push us for the life uh, that you have for us, that you created us for. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to ask a question before we get started, and if you would, kind of keep this question on your brain. And I'm going to attempt to answer it in Luke 7. I hope to. And here's the question. And kids, if you're with us this morning, I want you to hear this question. And I want you to think about this question. So this is for you as well. And maybe, and I want you to listen, if you can, listen for the answer to this question. So here's the question. 
Where does your value come from? Where does your value come from? If you remember from our study in Luke so far, in Luke 4, we see a very key text in all of the ministry, uh, all of Luke's letter. And it's Jesus going back to his hometown, presumably to a synagogue, maybe even the one that we're talking about here that was built by the centurion, a synagogue that's familiar to him amongst family and friends. And he has asked or he takes the opportunity to open the scroll, which was the reading much like Lydia did for us, the reading from the Old Testament. And he opens it up to Isaiah 61 and he announces to his hometown, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. A text that had traditionally been accepted by the people of God with great anticipation as they looked to this passage as the promised Messiah that they were looking for. But if you remember... As Jesus reads this passage, it's met with not just kind of like, uh, I don't know, what's he doing? It was rage. These people literally came up. Fan, fans, once fans and friends of Christ, are trying to kill him there. And the reason for this in part was because word had gotten to them that Jesus was doing much of what we see here in Isaiah 61, but, but not exclusively to the people of God. Word had gotten back to them that he was also doing these things to outsiders. And that's what we're looking at today in the first part of Luke 7. A request comes to Jesus from an outsider, a Roman military officer. So at this point in history, if you're unfamiliar, Israel is under Roman occupation. So the idea of Roman citizens and uh, Jewish citizens intermingling in this area is not uncommon, and it's a great example, the story is, of kind of the religious and social gap that existed between Jewish followers and, and Greeks at the time, Jews and Gentiles. Rome is a pagan occupying force, and it stands over the people of Israel, the force that the Jewish leaders for so long are awaiting the Messiah to come and rid them of to move them out of the way so that they can again take occupancy and sole possession of this land that was promised to them. But we see that not all of them were oppressors. There's plenty of evidence in our text that shows that this particular Gentile or Greek or Roman officer was not only a believer but a supporter of God's people. In verse 4 in Luke 7, if you'll look there for a second, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. The Jews are essentially vouching for this man who has been good to God's people, even helping them build the synagogue. So this centurion hearing of Jesus and the wonders that he's performing reaches out to him and pleads that he comes and heals his servant. Now, do you remember the question? Where does your value come from? Let's pick up in verse 2. Now the centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, and he was highly valued by him. Matthew's account says this, that he was lying paralyzed and suffering terribly. It's Matthew 8, 5. So Jesus starts his, there, his way there, and while on the way, 
Another word comes to him from the centurion, and we see that in verse 6. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Now, here's what I love about looking at the original languages. We have three different times here that the word value and worth are used in the ESV translation as well as other translations. And in English, we use worth and value kind of interchangeably. But actually here, if you look at the original text, we're looking at three different words in the Greek. In verse 2, the centurion's description of his servant as highly valued. Intimos means honored, precious. In verse 4, the Jews' description of the man is worthy. Axios, which means comparative value. In other words, the Jews are saying there, he's one of us. So he's worthy to have you doing this. Do it to him because he's one of us. In verse 6, the centurion says he is not worthy to have Jesus in his home. Hakanus means qualified, adequate. It could be referring to the Jewish law that if a Jew were to walk into a Gentile house, he could be considered ceremonially unclean. So he could be trying to consider Christ and saying, you don't want to come into my house. I don't want to cause trouble for you by you coming into my home and, and, and maybe not being able to go into uh, the synagogue and worship with your people. If you, but in light of verse 7, when he says, I didn't presume to come to you, we kind of take on this idea that it's probably more so reflects this humility and unworthiness that this centurion felt that to even be in the presence of Christ, that he was unworthy of it. Here's what rocked my world this week when I was sitting and, and studying this passage. There are two narratives going on not just in this text, but oftentimes in, in Jesus' ministry. The first narrative is viewing texts like Isaiah 61 and the rest of God's promises and of redemption, as many of the Jews did at this time, believing that because they were God's chosen people, they had exclusive rights to God. And so everything that they see of Jesus' doing or not doing is viewed in this lens of exclusivity having rights to God because of uh, who they were born as. The second narrative is viewing redemptive history as God intended. And we know that's how he intended because it's what Jesus embodied when he was on the earth. It's that all the promises of God and Jesus' death on the cross were for those he came to save which isn't taking anything away from God's people, but rather an extension of God's limitless grace and mercy to all of his scattered children, wherever they call home. Let's think about that for a second. Whomever they grew up worshiping, whatever they've done in their past history as a member of another people or society or religious cult, In the great lyrics of Charles Wesley, dating back to 1783, I get this sense, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain, for me who Him to death pursued. 
He left His Father's throne above, so free, so infinite His grace, emptied Himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. You hear that in the centurions pleading with Christ to not come to his house. But Jesus, uh, as he acknowledges and, and requests him to come to the house, but acknowledges that by the word of his power, Jesus can heal. You're not worthy to come into my house. I'm not worthy to have you here. But by the word of your power, I believe you can do this. I believe that you can heal. Now here's what's obvious, but indirect. And this is something that just, just I don't know, it got to me this, this week. Jesus had already been to his house. Do you see that? Jesus had already visited the centurion, where he was. Long imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's nigh. The centurion was the servant highly valued by Christ, called to leave his father's throne above and heal the one that was highly valuable to him, precious in his sight. Where does your value come from? If it comes from the law, then the centurion is an enemy of God, deserving destruction, bound in sin in nature's night, by his own doing, his own rebellion, destined for destruction. Kids, this morning, if your value comes from the other kids that you most admire, whether it's in school or anything else, or anywhere else, then you have in front of you the exhaustive process, and all adults can amen this, the exhaustive process of reinventing yourself every time cool changes. Every time something new comes in, you having to reinvent yourself to ante up to the new standard. It's exhausting. And if for whatever reason you find yourself not measuring up, then you risk finding yourself on the outside looking in. If that's where you find your value, that's what you have to look forward to. And I, I say kids, but aren't we the same, grown-ups? Don't we still struggle with that in work environments or, or in friendships or neighborhoods? Don't we still struggle with this same thing of putting our value into movable objects and things that change and shift on a dime? instead of placing our value in the one thing that does not shift and the one thing that is constant. There's a sure and steady anchor. What is left in this text for us is Jesus is acknowledging the two narratives that are taking place. If you look with me at verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Let me just pause there for a second. Jesus marveled at him. 
When was the last time that you felt marveled by God? And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. In Matthew's account, it says, Truly I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We are not believers this morning by birthright. Just as we have baptized Eloise this morning, she cannot be a child of God by water, by the blood of bulls, or obedience, whether hers or her family's. Only through Christ can we be called children of God. If you're a Christian this morning, then you, you already know that. So you may ask the question, why do I need to hear that again? Let me ask you this. Do you find yourself sometimes lacking the spiritual, in, the spiritual energy and hunger that perhaps you once had? Or when you look at young believers and you see their youthful enthusiasm to serve in the church and, and come and, and plug in everywhere, do you look at them and think, gosh, I wish I could come back and be comfortably naive like that person and do all those things and not realize how much work and stress being a follower of Christ can be? Do you find yourself more kind of under the weight and yoke of being a Christian versus the light, just love of God that you may perhaps see from a distance in other people and crave? Do you wish at times that you had more faith or more spiritual energy or more spiritual, whatever it is, that you could get more of that. Here's the reality. You have all the faith, strength, and acceptance that you will ever need when Christ awakens your heart and places His Spirit in you. If you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, then you have a well that never runs dry in your heart and soul bubbling over. The process of sanctification, this word of becoming more like Christ, is not putting more Christ into you. It's believing that God, through Christ's suffering, marvels over you already. It's putting aside the death and taking on the life. In his book, Victory Over Darkness, that I'm reading uh, with a couple of men Neil Anderson says it this way. We don't serve God to gain His acceptance. We are accepted, so we serve God. We don't follow Him to be loved. We are loved, so we follow Him. It's not what you do that determines who you are. It is who you are that determines what you do. What keeps us encouraged and in love, instead of turning into this envious, annoyed, skeptical older brother is allowing the love of Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit inside you to continually penetrate deeper and deeper in every life season, in every situation that comes. It helps to give us the right eyes 
to see ourselves as we truly are, not as unfortunate, but as the most fortunate. It gives us the desire to welcome the privilege of introducing others to the hope that we found and not holding them at arm's length, trying to protect them of, of the, the work and the stress that comes along with being a believer in Christ. It gives us hope as we get to experience what it means to become spiritual mothers and fathers to new and young believers as He sustains and keeps us. He reminds us of His unwavering, undiminished grace and mercy towards us. Where is your value coming from this morning? I have a... If, if John Wesley or Charles Wesley had not penned it, I, I sense that, uh, that this centurion probably, at least in his bones, felt something like this last verse that Charles Wesley penned. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Would you pray with me this morning? Father, this morning as we think about this believer and we, and we ask the question of value and worth, Father, I pray that we would be reminded that we receive from You. That You did not withhold Your Son from us. How will You not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Father, I pray that Your people this morning would trust in Your promises and what You've already said in Your Word. And they would take root in our hearts. It would affect the way that we live this week. We would see your word as not a law to keep, as boxes to check, but living water to be drunk and be satisfied by. Father, do that for your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.